0: It's something for nothing, the Rush Fancast, Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, I've got a question for you.
1: Yes. What is that question, Steve?
0: <laughs> What's the most excellent thing we can do today? Probably talk to our guest. It's my guess. That's a great guess. And we have a great guest, which will be forthcoming. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast, Instagram. We are the Rush Cast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro was done by Lex, The Garden, another fabulous job. And Jerry, we've got a great interview today. So why don't we get into your email, and then we'll get into the interview. Okay. Uh,
1: this email is from Billy. He is from Scotland. Hey, Billy. And he says, hi, Steve and Jerry. Just dropping you a line to say how amazing, like a soul, solo, the show is been listening about since episode 6 and after backtracking I've listened to every episode since the knowledge of Rush you and your guests have is always informative and entertaining so I thought I'd chip in with some of my Rush experiences here in Scotland first gig ever was the 79 Hemispheres tour with Max Webster as support and I've never looked back since this was followed up by the Permanent Waves tour in 1980 where closer to the heart was recorded and included on Exit Stage Left and my claim to fame is being part of the audience singing along and again a mention on the liner notes. I saw them several times over the years, but I just had a feeling that the Clockwork Angels tour would be their last in Scotland, and sadly, this proved to be true. Before I sign off for my ramblings, I thought I'd ask you if you know which instrument was the last to be played on the last song on the last album. Which is the last song, of course, is The Garden. It wasn't played by a member of Rush, Keep rocking, Billy.
0: Do you know the answer to that question, Jer? I do not know the answer to that question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> should we look it up? I didn't look it up. No, I figured oh. somebody would tell us. If you didn't know, I figured somebody would tell us.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, that was probably about the best compliment we've ever gotten. Yeah. As good as a Alex Lifeson solo? Yeah. Very emotional, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> We're not that good. No way.
1: Yeah. A little too much praise, but I'll take it. I'll take it.
0: Well, our guest today, Jar, is as good as a Lifeson solo. I think senior writer at Rolling Stone, host of the Rolling Stone Music Now podcast, Brian Hyatt. Welcome to the Rush Fancast.
2: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: We really appreciate it. We like to start out by asking our guest what their Rush origin story is, Brian. So when did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan?
2: Well, As it happens, the very first rock concert I ever went to was the Hold Your Fire tour at Madison Square Garden. Wow. And at that, my friend uh, Jason, I was in like eighth grade, and I was not really much of a music fan even yet. I was just about to, like, within a year. I got into The Who and Zeppelin and Rush for real, and kind of my whole path of being a music fan was about to start, but I hadn't really transitioned into that kind of stuff. I was into, you know, comic books and stuff. I wasn't there yet. And uh, my friend Jason, though, was a big music fan and a big Rush fan, and he was like, my mom will take us to the city and we'll see this band Rush. They're the best musicians in the world. And I remember playing the whole hold your fire cassette in my parents car and i don't think anyone knew what to make of it because it's it's not just rush it's you know it's rush deep into mm-hmm. the synth period i don't need to tell you but just you know it's actually listening to it now it's a, it's very strange you know it's it's very it's <laughs> very because it's partly the rush aspects of rush but also kind of peak 80s synth stuff and just some some really you know Tai Shan, which Getty says is the worst Rush song ever recorded. And so it's just, it's all very idiosyncratic. And it, you know, and some of it isn't even quite recognizable as rock music per se. You know, it's more like there's, there's adult contemporary pop on it. And, you know, obviously some, some of my, actually a couple of my favorite, some of, I think a lot of Rush fans, I mean, Force 10 classic Rush song. Time Stand Still is a great song. There's great stuff on it and great playing on it. But it's not really, if you're going to be introduced to Rush, it's much like the first uh, Springsteen tour I saw was uh, "Human Touch Lucky Time." It's like these were all the worst periods for these for these these right. acts, you know. Uh, and yet I still got into them, which is pretty funny. But anyway, so that was kind of my entree, and I, you know, and seeing the the concert, I have I have very fuzzy memories of because I still I'm sure like my friend played me some of the other stuff beforehand, but I was really a baby 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 fan at best, and also had no context for any of it. Like I mean, I, I didn't even have the rock context for it. I couldn't. I you know it was just like plunging a child who had never been to a rock concert into not just a rush concert but a rush concert of that era. And I actually what I remember most about the show is Neil's drum solo. and I don't remember so much what he played and the problem is as you know this all these false memories get in and you kind of you think about all the times you've seen it on video and and the other thing that's really confusing is then with some of the same friends like, in the intervening years, there was a lot of basement viewings of the uh, Show of Hands VHS tape, which was that tour, right? So it's like it all kind of mixed up together. But I remember the drum solo, and I just remember the crowd going absolutely apeshit when he started the <laughs> drum solo, and that's and I think in my whole life I had never seen a crowd in any context, even on TV that bananas and it made it that made a huge impression on me so the whole thing confusing as it was much must, must have made a major impression on me given that i became both a rush fan and what it ended up <laughs> doing for a living so it was just such a bizarre introduction but then basically from there i through kind of all of high school i was a big rush fan and, and i kind of went to all those tours uh as they progressed so i would you know I went, I went to presto and i went to uh, roll the bones and Waited out all night in, in the back of Jack's music to get the Roll the Bones <laughs> tickets. So I was like maybe sixth online with the the other dirtbags online to get the uh, to uh, get the Roll the Bones tickets. And despite being you know sixth online waiting out all night, I think I got you know fiftieth, sixtieth, seventieth row or whatever on the on the like the not really the floor like the back section of the floor because Lord knows what they were doing with those tickets back then. And I will say that I went to I saw the Roll the Bones tour. The night before I took the SATs, which, uh, my, par- which <laughs> my, my parents were not. It was in at Madison Square Garden, and I lived in Mount County, and, and my, you know it was a big. And of course, in registering, my parents were completely right. That was a moronic thing to do, but that I remember very clearly because it was a, a huge blow up uh, that <laughs> that I insisted on doing that. But you know, in the long run, which mattered more, <laughs> you know, I don't know. But uh, I, I feel okay with my credentials, you know. <laughs>
1: I think Steve. Didn't we go to a Judas Priest concert the night before you we did. took your the SATs? The night before our
0: SATs, Jerry and I went to a <laughs> Judas Priest concert, and I had the worst test of my life, but it was worth it.
2: What, was that also in the city? Was that a city uh, venture?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, it's probably the Meadowlands, I think. Yeah, yeah. probably Meadowlands. Okay.
2: Yeah. In a way, that's worse because you, the drive probably takes longer than the, than jumping on the train. You know, the, there was always that, if you lived in Jersey, the jumping on the train afterwards was actually not that bad from from Esquire uh, from, uh, Garden. Yeah. Um, although, if I remember correctly, my parents insisted that they that they pick me up and drive me back because of the SATs. So that was probably, yeah, that was that was a fun car ride. I
1: remember. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably insisting you sleep on the way back, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, it's funny. I I remember. I mean, that show and everything around it. I remember so vividly because it was such a stupid <laughs> idea.
0: Where would we be without our stupid ideas? That's right. So Brian, you've been with Rolling Stone since two thousand four. Is that correct? That's correct. How would you say Rush's relationship with Rolling Stone was at the time of your arrival?
2: So I think that a misperception is that there was sort of an active animus in the years preceding. I think that is actually a little bit more complicated than people think. There certainly was sort of a like a an indifference, I think, institutionally. I think that's why they weren't on the cover. And I think, you know, the, the obvious opportunity, because I always think I went through the same thing talking to people about KISS. One of my missions at at Rolling Stone personally was to sort of write some wrongs. So I also did KISS's first Rolling Stone cover story in 2015. So the same, or 16 or whatever, but but around the same time. So I was Mm -hmm. kind of writing some of these wrongs. But, you know, when you work at Rolling Stone, you understand certain things a little better. And so you you think of, well, what was the big opportunity? I think the one moment, realistically speaking, when Rush could have been on the cover of Rolling Stone would have been when Moving Pictures was out. It's really that moment of, of you know, when is the band hitting the mainstream success sort of for the first time or right after or, or on the subsequent album. But that would have been around the time. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's just... As far as covers, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of it's what you think. It's, it's sort of the editors were always attracted to bands with, with, you know, really strong and sexy images, which was never, <laughs> never Rush's <laughs> forte, as they would be the first to uh, admit, you know, they weren't going to be posing with their shirts off on the cover of all and That's pretty funny to, to contemplate. Um, <laughs> but I, I think generally, I think there is truth that and what actually what I was going to say is that so we had David Frick on staff starting in the early 80s, I don't even know exactly when, but for a really long time, David Frick loved Rush, always. If you read his reviews of, pa- look at his review of Power Windows. It is an absolute rave. David Frick is a huge Rush fan. So it's sort of like this is where the assumptions start to break down because it, it and, and even I've been surprised because I internalized this thing, oh, Rolling Stone hated Rush, and then I, I read his review of Power Windows, which is, an Absolute Raven, there's actually some other reviews that are... But there's other things like, I don't think Rolling Stone even reviewed Roll the Bones. And Roll the Bones is an incredibly underrated album that actually finds Rush mastering a lot of the things that critics might have been looking for, like Songcraft and, and you know, Concision and all sorts of things just in the the same, even to a greater extent, as some of the, the barriers they crossed with moving pictures in the 80s. So it's just, it's more like this indifference and this focus on trends and what's sexy and hot and new and i do think an anti-prog bias by the old school rock critic establishment is very real you know i think that i think that things proggy things were kind of just and look is some prog totally ridiculous in my opinion yes I, i think that some prog is is not great uh some prog is amazing uh so but there's a lot of those things combined it's also it's also honestly it it does become like a thing that has nothing to do with Rush in particular, it's just when something goes on that long, it can be hard for publications to sort of find a hook of the moment of, well, now we're going to cover it, because it's just this... It just goes on and on and on like, like it's almost the, your very consistency works against you. And then but then I can get to when things change. But, um, you know, what else would you like to know about Russia's relationship to Rosetta? Because I can I can that I
1: didn't address oh, nothing. That was a great answer. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, because a magazine is a money making operation. So you have to tap into what people are listening to and what they want to read about and probably moving pictures and signals might have been the time to do that. Maybe twenty one twelve, but who knows? Back then, I mean, between those two things, where's the hook? Where's the hook in in for Echo to get them on the cover?
2: The thing about and the the reason I don't I don't see twenty one, although certainly personally I, I see twenty one twelve as deserving it. That was seventy six. Rolling Stone in the seventies kind of struggled with harder rock. It wasn't in general. It, it that was that was a genre that it kind of. Was a little slow on and stuff. So not only was it hard rock, but it was like 2112. It was basically prog metal. So it just wasn't, it wasn't like the kind of thing that, and that's again, that's a failing of, of Rolling Stone Institution for sure. I mean, it's a, you know, it's an imperfect at best institution over the years and has had lots of failings. And that I just think that was probably unlikely. But I realistically could see a world where moving pictures or signals, they're at least in consideration. I mean, it, I would have. I mean, I've never talked to anyone who worked at Rolling Stone in '81, but I I wouldn't be shocked if it came up at some point when you have an album that big. You know, the other thing is there were times when in the '80s, particularly when Rolling Stone was very focused on movies and stuff, and it might be Michael Douglas on the cover. It always has been a very celebrity-driven, and and again, because of commercial reasons and just the taste of the thing. So it's it's often people who are famous, famous, and not just music famous, and that's never been rushed by their own choice. You know, that they're you know, so so that's part of it too. But there came a time, there was a first feature written by Chris Norris, Uh, I think around the time, I think, I think it was, I think, well, I don't actually don't want to screw this up. I forgot when he, all I remember is that I was like, I I was jealous that he'd gotten to do it and hoped that I would get my uh, chance. But I think it was, I think it was around the time of Clockwork Angels, a few years before mine. And for some reason, that one never went online. It's a, good, it's a good piece, too. He's not really a fan, but he spent some fun time with them. And, and, it, and it, it's, a, it's a funny and well-written piece. Uh, it's, it's 2008, so it was before, uh, I think it was before even the documentary. So good for us, I guess. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was slightly anticipating that whole thing, you know, um, the, the whole kind of mainstream pop world pop culture embraced them that came with all the various things that happened around 2010 to that you know and around it that we don't have to go over but i think the most interesting thing is to, is to actually to read that that uh, david frick review of power windows because it's sort of it upends a lot of assumptions and what it also upends is the idea that, that there was an institutional kind of rule or something you couldn't say anything good about rush and I also think another thing that people miss is the larger context, like I said, of that it isn't Rolling Stone per se. It was like Rolling Stone wasn't alone. It was ever it was it was spin. It was mm-hmm. it was just kind of a general the music press just didn't have the reviews were often respectful enough, but it just it just wasn't the kind of band that you that you went and hung out with for the feature, it just somehow never never became a thing and then it becomes self reinforcing. I, I do think I can't imagine it helped in the seventies when the whole enemy and i i don't have the institutional memory or have really ever talked to an older rock writer who might really know but the fact that they were perceived as this for a while as a super right-wing band that can't have helped That, that that can't have helped it didn't fit in with any you know of course it wasn't it may have been briefly correct truthfully i think that neil i think there were moments when you really read what neil had to say around that time that actually he later kind of protested that he never really was conservative, but that it was just Ayn Rand and, and that, it you know, it, 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 he, he wasn't really political. But then if you actually read, he may not even super want to acknowledge it himself. But there was a moment when he was – he would say things, you know, like unions are evil and, you know, lo- really kind of push it into an area that he later would kind of try to whitewash away because he was a little embarrassed. He definitely was embarrassed. I mean there, there were interviews with him because I read – man, I, I – Jumping ahead, but I've I've now read I read a lot of Neil Peart interviews, uh, including ones that are that people kind of miss when preparing for my latest piece. And and there there are moments when he actually would kind of deny that he ever was an Ayn Rand <laughs> right. fan. I mean, like like he, later he would say that was a phase I went through. But there were actually moments when he was so embarrassed by it in the eighties when he'd say like oh that was all super exaggerated. You know I never and it was like well you kind of did, but I but it's cool I understand. Um, but anyway, I think that 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 didn't help either. Um, I do think that people think that, you know, there was an active plan at Rolling Stone, which they view as this fixed entity with all the same people working at it year after year, which I can assure you is not true. Uh, even the fact that I managed to somehow work there 16 years is pretty fluky, but that is this fixed entity that always had something against Rush and even that Jan Wenner, they think they think Jan Werner had something against Rush. I've witnessed him interact with the guys in Russia, and it was it was, it was hilarious. I mean, the, you know, the, he, he after the Hall of Fame ceremony, he became very fond of them. He thought what Alex did was hilarious. He did? That's great, because it was hilarious. Yeah, I watched him tell Alex that it was hilarious. But it's so funny, it's so different than what, because I understand, and I completely understand, when you're a fan and there's no information coming through about why these things are happening, it can feel like the world is, 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 is plotting against you. And it can feel like that. And I understand why people think that, but it, it just isn't true. And and at the same time, I can also feel why, to a hardcore Rush fan, that indifference could feel as bad as an active plan to suppress. But the other thing you need to understand is that someone like Jan, who was the who was he he sold it. He is he's no longer the owner of um or the publisher. But but when he was the owner and publisher. He had a lot of things to do. He, it wasn't his job to keep track of bands that started in the mid-70s. He had people for that. I think it's also an imagine, as far as the cover is concerned, I think there's this imagination that, you know, every album that came out, you know, like, yeah, Test for Echo comes out and be like, is now the time to put Rush on the cover? No, of course not. We hate Rush. They're in the boycott <laughs> right. list. But no, it's more like when was the breakout moment? It was with moving pictures. And if you, once you miss that slot, you're kind of screwed for decades. Your next slot, and I'm talking abstractly about it as, as long, your next slot is when you become legends by sticking around for decades and you're on the verge of being honored in various ways. That's your next slot. That's the problem. It's your breakthrough. And, you know, or, you know, there's other people, especially when you have a band who have the bizarre arc of Rush where they had the breakthrough in moving pictures and then plateaued commercially. I'm just talking commercially for decades, you know, as opposed to like up and up or up and down. It's, they have a bizarre Singular, fascinatingly weird career arc. So, anyway, there you go with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the next place where you can start a story on them, and that's your that's your cover story in 2015. How did that come about? First of all, let me just tell you as a fan, you're writing a spectacular. I just want to let you know that this article is one of the best articles I've ever read on any band.
2: Oh, thank you so much.
1: And so, how did you go about getting that gig? and getting that kind of access for all the stuff that you uh, wrote about.
2: So I think, the, I think the way the cover came about was the Hall of Fame. I think that that was the kind of the... the pay. I think I pulled the same thing with Kiss. It's like, if they're getting this, they should get the other thing. Or if they got this, they should get this other thing. And, and that was a very effective argument. And also the idea that it, it seemed very much like it was the final tour, and that seemed to be, you know... So, so it I had been writing a lot of cover stories. Um, I think I'd let it be known that I was into this idea. And I think that was 2015, right? And so that was a a very, very crazy year for me. I I did like three years of work that year. Um, I'm still, this isn't the only story that I did then that I find myself dipping back to further stories because it just was, it was just a manic year that really was not very healthy as far as the The amount of work that I did and the number of of cover stories I did, I like literally can't believe how many I did that year is deranged. But anyway, so it's sort of, I I just was kind of at that point, kind of the go-to person for a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I I literally, I interviewed D'Angelo for the same issue. And I I was up, you know, like late at night with D'Angelo, like practically the night before I flew out to Tulsa to talk to Rush. So I wasn't, luckily it was a band that, you know, I, cared about for a long time but I wasn't even really properly prepared I guess in between that I've been in LA that's right because I was in LA to watch the band in rehearsal and to to interview Neil and then I think there were a couple weeks delay and then I went out to uh, Tulsa for the rehearsals and everything and to do the rest of the interviews but I mean as far as access a lot of it was what I really appreciate about them is they they understood the cover Rolling Stone as much as they might have wanted it not to mean something to them it did mean something to them. You know, these guys, they were at their heart, 60s guys. They were rock fans. They loved the tradition of rock. And so they, they understood. And this is something that, that can sometimes be more of a problem occasionally with younger, you know, a young rapper or something. They don't give a shit. You know, you, you have to explain mm-hmm. to them. It doesn't mean anything to them. And so you have to fight for everything. With them, they, they understood. They understood what a Rolling Stone cover story is. And they wanted their story told. And uh, hopefully they found me a pleasant enough presence. And so it just kind of unfolded. The, the joke I made when I first got to Rolling Stone is, wow, did I suddenly felt like I became a much better interviewer. And basically it's like people would start telling you stuff because you were doing the Rolling Stone interview. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, was, it wasn't even anything you were doing. It was just what it was. And so... Right there's a certain responsibility so there's also you know it's just they have and still have a, a great press person meg who also understands all this stuff and and will fight for the right things and um, and i think a lot of this and i know from from neil's book and what a surreal experience it was to then read about neil's account of all this you know neil sort of had to go back and forth about whether he wanted to do the wrong stone cover there was some trepidation cuz he you know i think he was still scarred from the even the enemy experience in the 70s i think never fully left his mind The truth is he always, once he warmed into it, he actually enjoyed doing interviews and would often over the years do very long interviews because he liked to talk, you know, and and especially if the trick was to, you know, and I think all the people who had good interviews with him, the trick was to not tense up, not think I only have so much time when we got to power through these things over and over again, but to talk to him like a person, talk about books, allow yourself to, you know, to be in conversation because he enjoyed a conversation. So once Neil agreed to it, then I spent that day with Neil, then then we were kind of in and that was all taken care of in LA. I got I got Neil in LA, I watched them rehearse, I ate dinner with them during their break and rehearsal, and then Neil drove me off and we went there and we spent that long period of time. I don't think I ever saw Neil except on stage in soundchecks in Tulsa ever again. I don't believe we, you know, got face to face again because of the way he was, he wasn't really talking to anyone, you know, um, that was just his thing. So it is weird. Like I, I, that, that was, I spent this very intense time with him in LA and then never, (laughs) never never really spoke to him again, you know?
0: I mean, as a rush fan though, that must've been some experience just spending that one day in your life with Neil. I mean, this may sound like a weird question, but did, did that day with him change you in any way?
2: that's interesting I mean i don't know if if that day with him i, I th- changed me i think that thinking about him especially recently and going back over that interview and rereading this is sort of jumping i would say that the experience of uh doing this most recent story which really drew a lot on that interview and that experience had more of an effect on me because the nice thing about an experience like that is it stays with you and and plus you recorded all of it you mm-hmm. know so so i have I have it all, you know, and so I was able to go back to it, and that was really nice. Um, and that that made an impact on me. I mean, you know, a lot of listen. I mean, I, you know, the, I I think just as much as uh, I, I, I made it pretty subtle in the story, but you know, I I went to Alex's. Alex and I had a had a <laughs> as anyone as anyone does hanging out with Alex, Alex and I, I had I had a I had, a, I had a, that was that was a lot of fun. I mean, we we uh, he is just a fun person to hang out with. Uh, we, we had this very boozy dinner. And I can't keep up with him as far as the booze part because uh, I would be I would have been on the floor. But you know, we had, we had this boozy dinner and then went back to his hotel room and he played guitar for me for like an hour, man. I mean, like like I mean, you know, like he was playing, he was just improvising on acoustic guitar for what seemed like forever, and it was just mesmerizing and and uh, you know did get me high. Uh, you know, like like we were smoking at <laughs> the uh, we were we were smoking at the blowing smoke out the window of the of the uh, Tulsa hotel room. Which I, I copped to in the story. was fair. I don't like making it about me, so I, I, I was pretty subtle. But I, I did say he passed the joint and I was mm-hmm. the only person in the room. So, I mean, all of it kind of sticks with me. But, that, but that's bananas. I mean, that, that's, that's, you know, I've gotten to do some crazy, crazy things. And then actually, to, to, and then to go back to your question, the other thing that, that really made, me, made an impression on me uh, as I write in the story is I you know, I watched them rehearse in a little concrete room like the size of the bedroom I'm sitting in right now practically – and it the way they rehearses, you know, it's like in order to actually, because they don't use amps. I'm not even sure Alex was using an amp in this particular case. I don't think he was. I think he even he was playing direct. I mean, on stage he does use amps, but he was he was playing direct. I I believe. And so all you heard if I, so I had uh, earpieces in. Everyone had to. You had to have like a tour pack like they have. And I had and so I heard them. They were like playing into my headphones. But occasionally I took them out, and all you heard in the room was just Neil playing drums um, and maybe like just an ounce of Getty's raw voice, you know, like, like above the, you know, on Cause there's no PA when they mm-hmm. rehearse, there's no PA. It's just, it's just all in their ears, you know, except for Neil. And so I just heard Neil. And so I did that a few times for like whole songs. <laughs> I would just, or at least one ear, I would just listen to Neil. So, so that's Neil's unamplified drums, just his drums in a room going to my ears. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as I, you know, the sound was just un fucking real. I mean, it's it's just. I mean, that's a real privilege. I mean, to to actually hear a musician like Neil Peart with your own ears, with nothing in between them. Uh, you know, no microphones, no recording, nothing. Just they're in your face. I mean, you, that is a rare, rare privilege, and that really stuck with me. And it's just it, it just was astonishing. You know, and and as plus you can really hear. You know, like what does the snare sound like? Like pretty damn good. You know, like, just, just, it doesn't, the kit was so beautiful, and his playing was so beautiful, it didn't need anything. And it's so funny, because that's what every recording engineer and every live engineer is trying to reproduce, is, you know, what does it sound like in a room, in, like, a, you know, a really reverberant room, and that, I know, I know what it sounded like, and and the answer is, like, pretty damn good, you know, so. (laughs) But yes, all that stays with me, and that's, you know, it's 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 definitely among the, the memories that, you know, I feel very, very fortunate to have accumulated those kind of memories, and it's just, it's just crazy. Like I, I, I mean, you know, it's, listen. There's other stuff. Is you know, I went bold with Eddie Murphy in his basement. You know, and it, it's just, it's, it's just. And then you go back to your your normal life. You know, that's the thing. You go back to your normal life. It's almost famous. You know, <laughs> the almost. The the, the, the the emphasis is really it should be on the almost because because you unlike them you then go back to to your ordinary life and you're just like did that really happen? You know. Oh, always like that, you know, and and the only proof that it'll ever happen is sometimes you, you meet them again and they still remember you. So, you know, it really happened, you know, <laughs> you know, I've gotten to do so many of these crazy things and I don't have to try too hard to not lose the sense of, wow, this is extraordinary. This isn't ordinary. It's like I when I interviewed uh, Springsteen recently after and it was like the fifth time or something, but I really wanted to hold on even the writing about it that this is not normal. <laughs> you know, the, don't treat this like normal and don't don't act like this is just regular because it isn't. It, even if it's the fifth time, it's not normal. So, anyway.
1: Well, that's an interesting thing because that's something uh, that's kind of like how Neil lived his life. Like every moment is its own moment. And to have that kind of um experience with him must have been fantastic, right?
2: Absolutely. And you know, it it was one of the things that I had to put out of my mind is just you know, Neil in his books and stuff makes so many judgments about whether people are stupid or not or whether they're, you know, whether they're worth, whether they're worth talking to or what they're wearing or like their physical face, you know, like he, he, he's, I mean, and I am too. I mean, I don't, I, I would never judge him for that because I'm the same way. I wouldn't maybe, and I think I admire how open he was about that in his books, his, his judgments of people and stuff. Cause I, I tend to hold that. Back a little bit more, but knowing that this is a guy who's going to decide whether i an idiot or not within five minutes is is an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting thing, you know. It's it's, it's uh, plenty of musicians and actors and stuff are very smart, but there's a few people who you have to be, who you go in and be like, you know, I really don't want this person to think I'm an idiot. But for the most part, I have that more if I interview, you know, Jack Dorsey or or or, or some scientist or, or or an academic who. I know is definitely smarter than me, and so I'm. I I don't want them to think I'm stupid. But that's not usually a feeling I have with musicians and actors, not to disparage them, because again, many. But with Neil, it was more like that. It's more like this thing of this guy is probably smarter than me. I know he's smarter than me. Uh, I don't want. I. I would really prefer if he didn't think I was an idiot. That kind of thing. So I was very conscious of that. I was very. I was very conscious of his general, you know, his his certainly his his reputation for. For, for sort of remove and, and and grumpiness and stuff was was also on my mind I found him immediately much more personable than the reputation might suggest I mean he you know and then, and then he he I don't know if you saw but in the book, he claimed to have never read my article. I have no idea if that's true or not, but he seemed to know a lot about it. <laughs> uh, I mean, I know I know I know Carrie read the article because I met at the time she she told me she liked it. Uh you know, back then because I, I I met her at a some kind of backstage thing afterwards. But, you know, he he wrote in the book that he had been told that I made a remark that he seemed awfully friendly for someone who said I can't pretend a stranger is a long-way friend and that he was sure that he hoped that I was just doing a riff Cause, and that I would understand the difference between a, a, a you know a, a, an interaction that was professional and had a purpose between someone but just bothering him and blah 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 blah. blah. And it's like, but I but all that said, he still was awfully friendly for someone who wrote that line. <laughs> I, I think I, I mean I, I I that's the truth. Like he he was, but I think part of it is that we were we were getting along and that I wasn't asking the kind of things that 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 bugged him and and you know I, I really strive to be polite and know how to not be weird around people of a certain fame and some of that it's not fair because some of that is something you acquire just by a certain level of being used to being around people who is so improbable that you'd be in the presence of it after (laughs) after when you do that enough times you acquire a certain comfort and that comfort unfairly acquired by the repetition of doing it then puts the person at ease so it's this kind of it, it, It's just a it's just a thing. So I so I wasn't you know I so so that all that. But yeah no I mean he was he was super relaxed. Being in that man cave was was a little bit like Batman allowed you in the Bat Cave or something you know and it, it, and we we drank the Macallan and and all that and and it, it was uh, and he he appreciated that. He said Are you a whiskey drinker? I said I said I am today you know whatever, <laughs> whatever you're drinking you know whatever, whatever you're drinking you know and, and and he you know he he appreciated that. I mean I think the trickiest thing with Neil interview wise was that he had already gone on the record in books and website postings on almost every conceivable subject and had already kind of decided what he had to say about this thing so there's a lot of there's a lot of times when he would quote himself you know he would literally say as I wrote in here as I said this mm-hmm. here and I said you know so, and so the trick and it, you know it's not easy was to find something he hadn't already said something about, or or to get him to say something he hadn't already thought out and, and read. So so that was it. Made it very hard to get something original. I, I think I did okay, but uh, it, it was tricky because he had set it up so that he had already thought out every conceivable subject and just was giving you the thoughts he already thought out of. So it was, mm-hmm. it was it's tricky.
0: So on January seventh, Brian, the one year anniversary of Neil Peart's death, you released. Another rush story for Rolling Stone called The Spirit of Neil Peart. Now as much fun as that first story was to write, this one must have been really difficult, huh?
2: Yeah, it was not uh not fun. It started, you know, way before because I you know, I I talked to their people and, and you know, and, and whenever they were ready, um we were certainly interested in hearing this story and then the pandemic happened and you know, there was no guarantee it would have been us or me, it could have been anyone. The pandemic happened, and I think a lot of people got understandably distracted with other things. And But I kind of kept it in, in sight, and I figured the next – again, it's all about slots, right? It's all about when is the when is the next time mm-hmm. when you can conceivably do it and it's not random. And it seemed like the one year was the thing, and so I started targeting that back in the fall. And uh, to the great credit, you know, everyone at Rolling Stone was, was behind it immediately, that if we could get it, we should do it. And then it was just a matter of, you know, getting it going and convincing the band. And, you know, I think Getty's first thought was that it was too soon. And then he had to be reminded it was almost a year, you know, which he kind of says in the story, which it just it felt like no time had passed. Um, but The main interview I did was this really, really emotional and, and bizarre Zoom call I did with Alex and Getty. Um, and it was one of the I was I was shaken. I think they were i think we were all kind of messed up for a couple days after it because that's where we kind of dove into all the stuff you know i wasn't sure how much they were going to go into as far as the real you know like just the i talked to ray first i talked to ray on the phone ray kind of revealed to me all the framework all the stuff we didn't know about the crossword puzzle and the timing and this and that and just that was my hope is that i would i thought that that might make sense to talk to ray first and get just so I'm not going in blind, so that I don't need getting Alex to to start taking me through dates, which they probably wouldn't remember as well as Ray. You know, musicians don't. They probably wouldn't get it as straight as a manager who is very good. But so I I had Ray first. I had a chat with Ray that was also very emotional and awful. Uh, not awful, but you know it was. It, you know we had to talk about terrible stuff and and uh, and so I went in from that armed with enough information about the timeline, just all the stuff so that I could, I could talk to them. And it, you know, it ended up being, you know, look, I've never seen those guys get emotional, um, getting out, not in person, not in a documentary that I can think of. I, don't, I I, had never, I had no memory of seeing them choke up and it happened, uh, you know, and I got choked up too, when they did, you know, but, but I mean, it, it was an emotional and wrenching <laughs> zoom call. It was really something. And I was just, you know, and, 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 it was surreal in a in a different way. Like, wow, that was you know I'm i sitting right where I'm sitting now, and so you know it's good to see them. Hi guys, I mean, they were there were some jokes. Alex was something funny to say, and they were you know and there were there were light moments. It wasn't all relentless, but they were you know it it, it still was like this because the Zoom adds this other surreal surreal thing about you know like here are here's Gideon Alex right where you guys are on the same screen, and that's fucking weird and even though i've talked to them numerous times before it's still just very bizarre and then we're talking about the heaviest shit imaginable and not to mention you know and also the heavy shit imaginable that also is you know is the end of the the line for this band that adds another level of i mean here they are you know reaffirming right right in my screen that this thing's over you know that, that that i mean of course rush as we know it is over but to then to just say it so bluntly You know, I was messed up for a few days, you know, it's just, you know, it was raining. I remember it was raining behind me, uh, you know, and they could see the rain in the window. And and, um, so it was it was very intense, you know, and then I had some very intense uh, conversations with other people and with Carrie. And um, and I felt a, a, a terrible responsibility. To get that story right, I really I really felt uh, an, an unusual level of of how much to how much detail to go into about the illness, um, because there's the bounds of, you know, what good are you doing anyone by telling certain things, you know, like what, 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 good, are you, what, what good is anyone going to have about hearing this like small little things that they're just a little bit ugly but at the same time, not over romanticizing it either. Cause it's actually Carrie, I think, interestingly, who really wanted to seem to want on the, to err on the side of not, as you can see from a couple of her quotes, to not romanticize it and to make it clear how awful it was and to honor her wishes, but also to honor the, I think with the, you know, the, the band probably wanted to to err on the side of, of not revealing stuff. And so, so I was just, and, and then to just use my judgment. So there's a lot of like, A lot of judgment calls, a lot of taste things, a lot of just wanting to get it right. And as a journalist, you never want to hold back anything material, but you also just want to stay in the realm of of good taste and, you know, just not to be gratuitous. And, you know, so it, it was it was really, really hard. And then just generally to represent him correctly. And then also, yeah, the same thing of like talking to him. I think his ghost was hovering over me and just thinking about, you know, would Neil think this was, you know, sloppily done or 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 not, you know that 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 was definitely when when the guy's a writer yourself, and I just reread every single one of his books and preparing for this, and read basically every interview he ever did, and and uh, even even if I read them before, but just you know that's what you do when you're trying to so, so just doing all that justice, and then also knowing that you just you know that he'd written six books and to condense some of that stuff into you know just a couple of sections, it was it was it was a lot a lot to. It was tough. I'm, I'm really glad that it got a good reception because I, I, I really <laughs> spent a lot of time, and, and I didn't really have a lot of time to, I had to write it pretty quickly, honestly, so, so uh, just as I did the original story. So a lot of things balanced there.
1: One of the things I was struck by was, was that Neil was kind of like reviewing his, his time with Rush, his career, listening to the old albums and critiquing them but knowing that they stood up to the test of time, which of course they they do. But what did uh, the other guys, Getty and Alex, have they been doing the same kind of thing over the years? Reviewing all their work.
2: I don't know about over the years. I know that that Ged and I'm actually gonna uh, I'm actually going to publish a little bit more from Ged. Just a Q and A with him about uh, some. Cause I, I did a follow up interview with him and a little bit more about music. So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, publish that. And I think Ged clearly was because he was talking about um, he had just been listening to, I think I said I'd just been re listening to Fly By Night, and he said he was too. So clearly, um, clearly he was. But, you know, I, I don't think they were ever embarrassed by the 70s stuff the way that Neil sometimes thought he was, you know, and, and yeah. uh, I don't think they would have ever said, you know, I wish our career had started with moving pictures. Which is silly. I don't think he, he didn't really. He would say that, but he would you know. But then then, then he would play the stuff like he really enjoyed playing the stuff for the last tour and everything. So I don't think he really meant all that. I think he also, to a certain extent, I think he might have enjoyed scandalizing fans by saying stuff like that. <laughs> uh, and I think it's just that that distance of it. Sometimes felt like a little bit like his relationship to. Rush fandom was not that different than George Lucas's, where yeah. at the same time where he cared about this stuff even more than the fans, he also was just a little, like weirded out by the degree to which the fans cared about it. But it's this weird thing where at the same time he put as much thought into it at the time as as they ever did. It's just that he was part of it was that he just was over the old stuff too. You know what I mean? And he would be over it as soon as it came out. And yeah, I mean, people would ask. There's all those hilarious, like the modern drummer reader questions, right? And then, and then some of them would, instead of being about snare drums or whatever, they'd be, they'd be still asking about, you know, something off of Hemispheres or like, you know, just, just <laughs> right. like super dorky, you know, like by Turn the Snowdog details, and just like, and he, he, he just had no patience for that. But at the same time, just as George Lucas secretly, you know, clearly loved Star Wars more than anyone else, I think. Neil had great affection for it. And I think, I just think it's the first time he could kind of, I think it's the first time, it's actually really sad, but it's the first time because he was always looking at the next thing. It's the first time he didn't have a next thing. Mm -hmm. So he could look back, you know, he had it. it, And so that, that's rough. (laughs) That's really rough to think about. But I think that that's, if you need to understand why he was able to do that, I think that that's why. And, you know, I mean, it was like that for uh, Don Perry feels that, you know, that, that, that Neil really felt that he had was just feeling good also about his, his books and stuff too. That he, he had he kind of went through everything and just felt like he had, he'd, you know, I think that, that Neil's someone who thought that you, you, know, you were given a certain amount of potential or whatever, and it was up to you to live up to it. You know, and and to I don't even know if he saw it that way. I think that, I don't know if he even believed in the fact that you had a potential. I think he believed that you could, that a lot of it was up to you. That it's not even about. And I think I think it's something also that he maybe went back and forth on. I I, th- I, I he would often say that he wasn't talented. He just worked hard. But you know, I, I I would imagine that in truth he probably believed that you had a certain amount of potential allotted, and then it was up to you to see how far you could push it. You know, and I, I think that he had good reason to think that he had pushed everything to the limit. I, I think if he came to that conclusion, he he'd be correct. You know.
0: Well, as a Rush fan, it just makes me feel good to know that Neil was proud of his work that we love so much. You know, does that make sense?
2: It does, and I I think. As a Rush fan, did, did it seem to you like you weren't sure if, if Neil was like, <laughs> oh, sure, or, was it was a fan of of his own work, of of the band's work, or that he was kind of that he had a weird relationship to it? Did someone it seem that way to you?
0: Well, yeah, I mean that quote that you mentioned that he didn't think anything prior to moving pictures was any good. I mean, for him to think that is strange to me.
2: I think it's it's also you know he listens to things in such a weird way. I think a lot of it. You know, he was focused on his own, you know, was he overplaying, you know, was his feel, things that we can't, you know, was he relaxed enough in his groove, was his feel, you know, is he better? So, And he was also comparing the stuff to the way he play later, and sometimes what he meant by that is almost like, is the way he plays those songs now he's mm. happy with, but he wasn't happy with the way he played them then. And sometimes it's stuff that if you're not a drummer or even if you're just not him, you can't really hear, you know, it's just the suppleness of the time and the, the elasticity of the groove and stuff that we're like, I don't know. It's not pretty good you know, <laughs> to, to, to me. Uh, and, and then, and some of the, you know, the spazziness of the seventies drumming, uh, like on all the worlds of stage or something, the stuff he might be most embarrassed by is kind of the stuff that, that, sometimes we dig the most and it's like the same way that he you know there's high points of rush's catalog that might have you know for him that he like i think it's test for echo that he's so so proud of because his playing is so great on it When it when it's actually you know like might be in some point ways a low point as far as you know you know has dog ears on it you know so it's just like it's it's like uh, so 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 his it's this weird thing where he had so many things going on whether it's the lyrics or the it's the reason why you can't always allow the people who make the work to be the judge of what's the best stuff because sometimes they really can lose the forest for the trees. Like okay, great. Like you had the best grasp of groove, but like you know, again, dog ears. You know, it's like, <laughs> but, but so I think a lot of it's that. So I think also maybe when you can listen back in its totality, you're listening to the whole band. You're not just listening like, oh geez, like you know, my my feel on the hi hat was just not quite right at that time. And then he's hearing the whole thing maybe for the first time really, and realizing like, oh hey, that's uh, now I
1: remember why you know that's why people loved us, you know you know the band is also different in that they got better over time i mean it seems impossible right that they could get get better they were still learning things about their instruments i mean neil took lessons i don't really think that of any other band that they got better 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 i mean like acdc you know they're not pushing the the boundaries of their talents but they were rush was so i could see why he would be looking at things uh, the early things critically
2: well, I think I think to your point, I think that Clockwork Angels, which I think a lot of fans do recognize the greatness of, I think is under recognized in the larger context as far as a band that's been around that long making an album that good. It's like if the Who made Tommy in the year two thousand or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's it's really like for them to make an album that good as their final album is just the only comparison is you know, is Bowie's Black Star is probably the only final album that's as good as that, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very unusual. Uh, and then that's certainly something they can be super proud of, you know?
0: So Brian, we've gone through Neil's lyrics song by song on this podcast and over and over we come away with the same thought that Neil wanted us to make the most of the time we had left on this earth and your story. I came away with that same thought.
2: Yeah. Sorry. I'm nodding for the, for those <laughs> who can't, uh, can't see that. Yeah. Yes.
0: I mean, just a fabulous job, really.
2: Thank you. I I did. You asked about things affecting me personally, and that, well, you know, a few things. I was thinking that Neil, Neil's ethos. I think you know, as much as I was a Rush fan, I I think I there was a long period where where I kind of I'd gone through that phase, absorbed you know their full catalog, and then kind of for a while moved to other things. And I think that, I think Neil's ethos is a healthier one than a lot of the rock and roll. Ethos as far as like, you know, Bob Dylan used to pretend that he basically had no education and no training and that his songs kind of just magically came to him. And it it was actually another folk singer who said that basically that was completely a (laughs) lie that he had his copies of French Symbolist Poetry were full of Dylan's underlinings that, that Dylan stayed with him for a while. And he was that he went through and like underlined everything and made notes. And and this is a guy who worked very hard to pick it up. And there's a lot of people like that in, in in rock and roll where this this is this pretense of the, of just you either have it or you don't, it should just kind of drop from the sky. Whereas the Neil ethos of, I wrote four books and didn't publish them because they were all bad. And I, Worked to the point where I felt a book could be published and I worked my ass off to get there And when I was 42 years old and the world's best drummer I went back and started drum lessons from scratch because you can This stuff is within, you know, it, it, it's free will It's within your hands to make your own fate and to improve yourself And to, I just think that that's a, a very inspirational ethos That I, I could have internalized better myself Uh, a long time ago. It makes me, uh, this is pretty personal actually, but I, I, I wish that I had internalized that ethos better when I was 18 years old. And I think that that's a much healthier thing than this magical nonsense of, of things dropping from the sky, you know, and, and also more realistic. I said this to someone else, but I think for young people and even much older people, that reminder that, that your fate is within your hands and that, that you've got to grind for it uh, and that, that before the tour, whatever the equivalent is of rehearsing before the, for the tour, before the rehearsals start, that we all can be doing that. He's an actual role model that is actually, a good, I mean, you know, he, he wasn't perfect. I, I can't recommend the smoking. I can't recommend a lot of things, but you know, then there's the, 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 the certain things, but I think it's healthier to tell kids, for instance, not to get too sincere, but, but that your fate is in your hands and that, you know and and he understood the limits of that he, he came to understand the limits of that he never he was very doctrinaire about it and that's one of the things that you know he understands that if you know he, he used the example of in his words if he was born in Bulgaria he could exercise his free will all he wanted uh, and it, nothing would happen And the same for you know, being born in deprivate you know he also talked about Africa and then you know it, to certain that, that circumstances very much, could affect your ability to make your own fate. But that said, it's healthier to believe that you can make your own fate. It's healthier to believe that you can put in way more than a thousand hours. He would say that's nonsense. You know, put in, a, you know, somehow a thousand hours a day and maybe you'll get somewhere. And I I just think that that's a better example, a, a more grown-up example of, of how, to, how to conduct yourself. And then also just, you know, the, he was determined to to really live life. You know, he, he was determined to put, as you said, you know, to make the most of his time. Um, and he also just had more energy. You know, I, I think he used the term hyperthemic in one of his books. You know, he, he was an unusual person. He Most of us don't have that kind of energy or, or drive, but we can emulate it. I mean, most people, like you know, it's totally crazy that he would... <laughs> That he felt the need to not only play the arena to be the best drummer in the world on stage, but in the same day drive on a motorcycle for for three hundred miles. Like that's yeah, that's unnecessary, right? That's nuts. Right. So I mean, on some level, that's nuts. And I think I do think there probably were points where I think, and that's why I think it's fat it's stuff to explore maybe in a longer thing because I really have a lot of remaining thoughts. But there, there definitely was a drive in him. There were things that I, I'm not sure that that's to emulate. I think that he probably could have, you know, go for a ride, but maybe just, just rest and play the concert and then your feet won't hurt so much and then you could keep going. You know, it's, it's in a way, I think he was going against his own thing there because if he really was living up to the lyrics of Marathon, he would, he would realize that actually, like, it's too much. And part of it really may have been actually that he needed to engineer a situation where it was so difficult that he couldn't continue I think that – because I, I think on some level he just really didn't want to. I, I think there was a lot going on there with the motorcycle thing because it obviously wasn't logical, right? He could have done it half the time. It made no sense, but it was the thing that made it bearable to him. And yeah. no one could begrudge it to him. But but if you really think about it, there, there were elements of sort of a little bit of illogic there or something. Like, like it's, it's just – if it's hurting that much – and I, I think the only conclusion one could draw is he just didn't want to do it. you know? And, right. and, so, and so if you set up the situation – where that becomes physically manifest, then you can finally say, you know. But no one around him can really trace the exact logic. Only that it just, it's just what made it bearable to him. And he loved. You read the books. He loved it so much, but he couldn't love it on a separate day. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> he like, like it's just, it's just wild. I mean, it's I. I mean, you really contemplate a sixty-two-year-old man on a motorcycle in the rain, and that same night he goes and plays a three-hour concert that includes him having to play the same stuff he played when he was 25 years old at the same tempos, in the same way, on the same kit. You have to be like, that is bananas.
1: Uh, toward the end of the article, the, uh, the most recent article, you quote Getty as saying that he wouldn't hesitate to play Rush songs in the right context. Now, there's been a lot of ridiculous speculation about you know going on tour again with a different drummer or something's ridiculous. But could we expect something happening like what would be the context where getty and alex would play again i think they
2: genuinely don't know the answer to that um i and so so we can't know the answer to that i think they would getty everyone the thing that everyone always has emphasized to me about getty is getty is more of a lifer than any of them getty is very fit um he's one of those people you know like, like his, his his mom everyone in his family lives you know there's a lot of people in his family who live a long time he exercises a lot. He has a lot of energy. He'd want to be out there if it was up to him, he'd be out there all the time, you know. So this is tough for him. Alex, I think, you know, you know as I said that the arthritis turned out to be much less of an issue than he thought. So they could play. I just don't think I think one of the things to realize is the same conversations that fans have sometimes bands are having the same way like well could we do this could we do that it's not there's no additional information that they're privy to that that we're not there you know what would be appropriate it would be weird to you know there's no drummer alive who could do it and it also would feel disrespectful we certainly couldn't call it rush would we even want a tour you know and, and do just rush songs or would it make more sense to be get to do another solo album as getty and then go out and on tour and then and then you then you just have you know, a band and you play a mix of your solo stuff and Rush, but then would the fans be disappointed that it's half soul stuff? I mean, it's the same, they don't have any, again, it's the same conversations you'd have. And I think the problem, this is just me talking, is none of it feels quite right, but it also might be that they go out and do something, or it might be that they don't. I don't, you know, I, I just don't know. It could be that he records a solo album, but doesn't really tour, plays a few select shows, you know, or, or, Who's to say, you know, it's, I'm sure it's very frustrating because they love playing together, but you know, what do you do? You know, it's, it's not like any other, yeah, right. no drummer's going to want that gig really, you know, and, and even if it's getting and Alex life and present the music of rush or whatever that I don't know, you know, it's, it, it's just, it's really, really tough. I don't, I think it's more about, you know, would they record some music? Cause that's more realistic. I don't know if I can see them going out and touring, you know, I, I don't know if I can see that. Because it just would be so, it would feel so weird. And and there's never been a situation quite like this. The closest thing would be Zeppelin, and they never quite made it work either. Without Bonham, they played a few times, it didn't really, it never really worked. They they finally did that O2 show that was pretty good, and then, then it all fell apart. I think that's the closest analog, and, and it's important to emphasize that that's an analog who never did tour again. They did pay. They did page and plant. so there was page and plant. But are people glad they did that or not? You know what I mean. In the end, I, I don't you know. And they were and they, and they were younger. They made albums. Yeah. And people sometimes forget that it ever even happened. Like I almost forgot. You know that there was a page and plant thing. But then again, it's different. It's not quite analogous because they did they delivered. <laughs> they, they left John Paul Jones out, so there's no John Paul Jones here. But but you see what I mean? It's it's just really tricky, and I'm not sure there's a good answer. Which. It's tough, and then also, I mean, there's a real. I know that, like, when Walter Becker died, it was Donald Fagan's personal preference that they stopped calling the touring act Steely Dan. He wanted to call it, you know, the touring whatever it was, you know, the music of Steely Dan featuring Donald Fagan. you know, just something. Mm-hmm. But the promoter said, <laughs> if you want to, <laughs> if you want to play these venues, it has to be Steely Dan. You know, so that's the that's the other thing you get into. I don't think they're definitely not going to go out as Rush. That is clear to me no matter what Mm -hmm. and so then what does that leave maybe nothing you know maybe maybe just recording it maybe recording together maybe playing a couple isolated things or 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 just guest spots and you know i don't know it's it's tough i mean look it's like you know part of the thing is i just wrote this other i wrote a thing about eddie van halen's uh life and and part of it is just understanding that the Unfortunately, the era of, uh, you know, the, the classic rock era is in its final days, you know, and a lot of these bands are in their final days. And it's just, it's very, it's the mortality of the bands as much as the people. And it's, it's, it's tough to, it's tough, you know, it's tough. I mean, I think, I think, fan, I mean, to really know there'll never be another Rush concert per se is a, is a tough thing for, for fans to wrap their heads around. You know, it's, it sucks. It, it sucks.
0: So, Brian, fast forward 50 years for us. What's Rush's legacy? How will these three men be remembered by future generations of rock and roll fans?
2: Well, I hope there will be future generations of rock and roll fans. I, what I believe is, you know, Getty's joke about, you know, who are Rush fans? It'd be like, it always includes 16-year-old male musicians. And I, I do think that as, whenever, wherever there's a, a kid, uh, male or female, wherever there's a kid, uh, learning guitar or bass and drums, and wanting to sort of swing three bats by learning stuff that's harder than almost anything else. Uh, they're gonna be learning, trying to learn Rush songs, and that will lead them into the world of Rush, and that alone will ensure their their immortality. And I think also that the fact that they were not driven by image or trends, and that their album covers are all use beautiful art that kind of like lives off in his own land will really help as far as just there's much less of a barrier of getting into them. It's, it's much more abstract. And I think that as long as there's a classic rock canon, and I think people underestimate the degree, and maybe I'm biased from just being in the tri-state area, but as you guys know, like WNEW or whatever the classic rock station, they were part of the classic rock Thing they weren't. That's why I always kind of got confused when people would be like, "Oh, they're like the weirdo outcast bands for for weirdos," or what you know, like the like the, the nerd band. It's like, well, I don't know. They were on the radio all the time if
1: you lived in the Preston <laughs> right.
2: area. Like I, like you know what I mean. Like so, I, I always just felt they were. It was just you know, here's a rock block of Rush and here's a rock block of uh, you know of of the Who, and it it really wasn't. They weren't treated that much differently. They actually were just one of the bands that were sort of grandfathered into classic rock because they were a little younger than some of those. Groups, but classic rock band, you know, they're just a classic rock band. And I, I think maybe I'm completely biased on that by, by just by geography, you know, I think as long as there's classic rock, as long as there's young musicians, I think they will be remembered. And I think that it's a catalog, as, as Neil realized, looking back, that really holds up. And they they also were so good at, at recording themselves live over and over again and making sure that was documented. And I think I think we're all grateful for that. Uh that you can crank a lot of well-recorded Rush live albums and be back there is uh something to be super grateful for and so they captured themselves at their best and that means that future generations can hear them at their best and uh you know it's I mean it's also like I, I didn't write this in an article, but it is amazing that Neil's the only one of the sort of contenders for greatest rock drum of all time to really come in an era when drum machines were taking over. So there really is that John Henry aspect to him, right? So he had to learn and he could play on Tom Sawyer, something like Tom Sawyer is him playing a robotic pattern. I mean, obviously not through the whole song, but when he's doing that high hat stuff, he's doing it as, as well as a machine could. And I, I really think that's part of why he was playing like that is because there, there was no call to play like that in the, in the 60s. You know, there wasn't... But, but because drum machines existed, people had that sound in their head of the robotic 64th notes or whatever it is, 32nd. And he could fucking do it. You know, and, and I think that that aspect of him is, is very noble. That he was a drum hero in the era of drum machines is, is really cool, uh, you know, and, and extraordinary.
0: Well, I think we found the answer to the question, what's the most excellent thing we can do today, Brian? And that is speaking to you. (laughs) I'm glad. Thanks so much for joining us on the Rush FanCast. We really appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Anytime.
0: So, Jerry, I know we say this after every single interview we do, but how fantastic was that? (laughs) That was fantastic. You do say that a lot. I do say it a lot, but it's true, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think Brian's latest story was really, really important for rush fans. It, it gave us closure after Neil's death a year later.
1: Yeah, it definitely did. It was so well-written and so moving, especially there with the part in there about, uh, Olivia daughter getting mm-hmm. up to speak. That was, that was a little much to read to tell you the truth. Yeah. It was
0: gut wrenching really. Yeah. And another thing that, uh, Brian talked about, which I thought was fantastic. Rush fans kind of vilify Rolling Stone for never having Rush on the cover, but Brian had a great explanation for it.
1: Yeah, it was a great explanation and it's it's kind of strange, you know, to believe all these years as I have believed that, you know, there's this one shadowy figure (laughs) behind (laughs) Rolling Stone who has a grudge against Rush and and has been keeping them out or keeping them off the cover for decades, but you know, that's not true.
0: Well, like he said, they missed their chance when moving pictures came out. They probably should have done it then, but they didn't. And then after that, when did they have the opportunity really? Yeah. Right. Until the end.
1: That makes perfect sense.
0: Makes perfect sense. And another thing that jumped out at me was how cool was it for Brian to spend all that time with Rush? He got to ride in Niels Aston Martin, sip the McKellen with him, right? Yep. He went to dinner with Alex Lifeson and watched him practice for an hour and smoked weed with him. <laughs> and he went to a minor league baseball game with Getty Lee. I mean, talk about living the life. Yeah. Talk about
1: three different personalities too, right? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Driving fast with Neil, getting high with Alex and watching baseball with Getty.
0: <laughs> really, really great. I also wanted to point out that Brian has his own podcast that you should check out. It's called the Rolling Stone Music Now podcast. He pretty much covers the gamut, all types of music. So whatever you're into, Brian's got you covered. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Twitter at rush Fancast. Instagram. We are the rush cast email, Jerry, let him know what you thought of our conversation with Brian Hyatt at the Rushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro was done by Lex. Another masterful job by Lex. And Jerry, I hear you have a masterful quote for me. Let's hear it.
1: Yeah, you know, we talked uh, a little bit about dog ears. It was mentioned a couple of times. Maybe not in the most positive light. So I figured I would quote from Dog Ears, probably my favorite verse from Dog Ears. All right. It seems to me, while it's true, that every dog will have his day. When all the bones are buried, there is barely time
0: to go outside and play. So true. Thanks, Jer. Alright, see you later, Steve. Have a good one. <laughs>